Hey guys, it's Lou Perez here welcoming you to the Lou Perez podcast. You may recognize me from my work at We The Internet TV or Greg and Lou. Um, just so you know, this is a completely independent venture. This is my own thing. And if you like to support it, you can check me out on locals.com and join the Lou Perez community. Now, this is my debut episode and I had to do it right. So I invited my good friend, Dr. Deborah Sowan. You might rec uh, recognize uh, Deborah from her work in the uh, sex, gender, and bullshit series with We The Internet TV, as well as all the writing that she does. And she has a book out called The End of Gender. So in this episode, we talk about her book, we talk about relationships, and um, I had a lot of fun doing it, and I hope you have a lot of fun listening to it. And I am so excited to be joined by a good friend, uh, Dr. Deborah So. And Deborah has a new book out called The End of Gender. And for anybody who has the video, you could actually see this video, it's right here. It's right there hiding out among my, the, the many books in my bookshelf. Um, so Deborah, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me. This is, this is my premiere. Ah. This, is, this is so awesome. Congratulations. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and, and uh, you know, as much as I would love to have been able to do this in person, um, you know, thank goodness we were all able to find uh, microphones and recording equipment so everybody can have a podcast now. So. Yeah, basically went foraging for them in a panic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, the last time that, that I saw you was actually at a live show in Los Angeles. I think it was last year. Was it 2019? It was almost a year ago. It was November. No, wow. It was almost, almost a year ago. And um, uh, we were joined by uh, Professor Barry McDonald and we screened um, my old uh, documentary, the, uh, the Funny... Well, it was Five Reasons Why We Need Hate Speech. And it was the funny thing about Hate Speech Tour. Um, and uh, something that, that was pretty troubling is the fact that you needed security uh, at that event. It was a very low, you know, low key uh, event and kind of a, a small like black box theater. And yet there were credible threats on your life. Um, could, uh, could, maybe we could talk about that a little bit. And I hope things have, have quieted down on that front. I hope you're not getting those threats anymore. Well, I haven't needed security lately, right. but that's also because I haven't been going anywhere <laughs> because right. with a typical book tour, you know, you'd be flying by coastally, but um, just with travel restrictions right now, everything has been for me done virtually, which is great. You know, it's, it's pretty much, I think almost the same thing, but I, you know, I, I'm used to dealing with these kinds of things pretty much since day one of my writing career. So uh, I appreciate that you took it seriously. And um, I, I just try to be positive. I try not to focus on the, the negative stuff and the, the backlash and things like that and just keep focused on what my message is and why it's important. Yeah, because uh, anybody who's, um, you know, spent time online, you know, you're going to run into people who uh, say, oh, I'm going to kick your ass, man. And in my mind, it's always people who are sort of, uh, you know, in their minds, like an alpha male who's like, you know, I'm going to kick your skinny ass or, or something like that. But it, it, it seems like when it comes to threats of violence, just uh, all sorts of people are able to just um, levy those threats. 
Well, it's all sorts of people. I mean, I, I said to you last time that I have a weird sense of humor. So I generally find that stuff funny when it happens. And it's usually the people in my life is like my family and friends who say, you know, Deborah, that's not really funny. You should probably take this stuff seriously. So yeah, it is what it is. And, and it's unfortunate. Um, but you, it almost becomes like white noise after a while when you're just so used to people always being upset at you. I'm, I mean, I'm sure you know what it's like to some extent and you just, it just becomes the baseline. Yeah, I actually I had a I had an experience of I had posted a joke, and the and on Facebook, and a guy responded by saying that I'm that I was disgusting, and I responded in a very childish way by taking a screenshot of his profile picture, and uh, you know basically putting that up in response and be like, well, you know, at least I don't look disgusting. It was very very childish. But then he responded by saying like, hey, be careful, man, because uh, your family isn't off limits. And it was like, whoa, that's, that's messed up. Yeah, that was really messed up. And uh, I responded by saying, look, man, I would never, ever, you know, threaten somebody's family, especially over, especially over something like this, you know. Uh, and a bunch of my fans and stuff sort of uh, piled on this guy and, and were uh, you know, just kind of taking the piss out of him. Uh, but you know, to his credit, the guy actually did, uh, was, he reached out to me over direct messenger messenger and apologized. And he said, Hey man, I'm, I'm really sorry that I did that. And for me, that was, that was enough. I was like, look, you know, uh, we all, you know, have, uh, you know, have bad days and sometimes a, uh, uh, you know, sometimes our reactions aren't what we would normally do if we were, you know, had time to think about it, you know? I accept your apology. And I ended up taking down, I think, uh, a couple of other things that I, my responses to him or something like that, just saying like, hey, we squashed it. It's cool. Uh, and uh, it, it's very rare, I think, for that to happen. For one, it's rare for people to apologize online, I find. Um, anytime oh, yeah. that happens, mm -hmm. I'm like, whoa, we really made, like, man, we, we made a difference here by just saying, oh, yeah, it's I like messed up. You're bonding at that point. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I love you, bro. I love you. And it's sort of like the the um, the bar is so low nowadays where it's like, yeah, man, humanity. Great. You, <laughs> you were wrong or something about something. Well, that's the thing I find with internet discourses because people will say things that I hope and I don't think they would actually say to you if you were sitting across from them in real in real life. But yeah, there's this complete lack of boundaries and it's like people are fighting over these issues. And I understand they're contentious issues and they're important issues because they do affect us in our day-to-day -day lives. But there has to be some some point where you say, okay, we're not going to cross over this threshold because it's just not acceptable. And even if this is a stranger, like this person attacking you probably thinks it's not going to affect you. You know, you're a public figure and whatever. It's, it's basically free range, but it's not, it's not okay to behave like that. So it's, it's good. He apologized. Yeah. Yeah. And do you find that, um, because you, you've become a public figure, you've gone from, um, you know, academia, got your PhD and then you made your move into journalism. Uh, do you find that people sort of find them, think that they're kind of entitled to your attention uh, in a way? Um, it's hard to say because I don't know what they're actually thinking. Maybe. I think people get mad that someone like me or my colleagues, we get the opportunities we do to say the things we do and they feel in some ways it's not fair that they don't get to. So I understand that. But at the same time, you know, I've worked really hard to get to this place to write a right. book to get a chance to go on these podcasts. And so, you know, it's, it's uh, what I would say to them is 
you can do that too. You know, when I started, I didn't know anybody. So it's the same thing. If you're frustrated with how things are, you feel like you're being silenced or your perspective is valid. It's not being heard. You are, especially with the internet now, there's nothing stopping you from going on and, and making a video or writing a blog or, or being on social media. I mean, be, again, be nice. <laughs> don't, right. need to be, don't need to be awful to people. But at the same time, I don't think a good way to go about it is to to be angry and fester and, and try to tear down other people who do have platforms. Yeah, it's almost like the uh, uh, those people who, like the pickup artists who like, oh, the way you're going to pick up women is by uh, negging them first, mm-hmm. by putting them down and then they're going to, and it's like, no, man, that, that that's a terrible way to go about life and actually dealing with people. And uh, it, it's, it's funny because it, uh, uh, talking about like the, the connections and stuff um, that we made, like I remember... Uh, the first time that I came across your work, you were a guest on the Luke Thomas show. And uh, you were, I think, in, stu- uh, I think you were in studio, you might have been. Um, I think talk- it was on the phone. It was oh, on the on phone. phone. Actually, but- and, and you were talking about um, the James Damore controversy from, you know, from years back. And mm-hmm. it was so funny because I watched Luke Thomas because I liked his, um, his MMA commentary. He's probably one of the best um, uh, analysts when it comes to mm-hmm. MMA. And then he, he had you on. I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. I started reading your stuff and I found, uh, I, I don't know if it's like your email or something like that, but I reached out to you and said like, Hey, uh, would you be into doing something with this uh, program? I do We the Internet TV. And then, um, man, that's probably like close to like three years ago now. That's insane. You know, and I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity when we did that series because people loved it. I thought it was really, really funny. And that was literally like the second time I'd have ever been on camera before. So I was like, I really appreciated that you, you gave me that chance. Oh, and you, and you were, you were fantastic. Like I, um, you, your straight man is the <laughs> most perfect straight man. Uh, every, and, and it, it's, it's so, it's, uh, you're so convincing that people like there are people who watch it and are, and are like, there's no way she had a good time on this, uh, oh, on the show. <laughs> I know they, they think I didn't know that it was satire. They right. thought that they were like, Oh, she didn't look up the show before. She didn't know what she was getting into or she has no sense of humor. And it's like, no, that's, you know, that, that is partially how I am though. I am pretty blunt like that. And I do have resting bitch face, but <laughs> I, I was in, I was in on the joke. Yeah. So you guys heard it. Okay. She knew what she was getting, uh, what she was getting into. Um, one, one little thing, um, uh, that happened, uh, after the live show is I got to meet a friend of yours, uh, named Josh Barnett. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, Josh Barnett is, uh, is a great, uh, mixed martial artist. Uh, he's a, a catch, a catch wrestler, uh, grappler. Um, and he's a world, world champion too also. Oh yes. Yes. I can't, I can't, I can't leave that out. And, um, uh, when I met him, I totally, uh, I kind of, I, I was stumbling on my words and stuff. And I haven't had that experience too many times where I'm like starstruck. And it was so weird because I had no control over it. And I wanted to like, uh, I was trying, <laughs> I was trying to carry on a conversation with him and, and I was just losing all these words. And I was like, oh man, what a dork. I'm such a dork. I wanted to tell him like, Hey man, I really, you know, that, that, uh, that match you had with Dean Lister was awesome for Metamorris and, you know, I'm really looking for, you know, and all the cool went out the window. And, um, I'm just wondering, is there, is there a scientific reason of, of why that happened to me? <laughs> I don't want it to happen ever again. <laughs> well, we can, we, okay. I can talk about the science, but yeah. I have to say, you know, Josh is the nicest person. So I'm sure if anything, he was just happy to hear that you were a fan of his work. Totally sweet guy. Yeah. And, and, uh, I mean, he's a killer. He's an assassin. Uh, but he's also very intelligent as well. And if uh, he's been on uh, Joe Rogan a bunch of times and he's uh, 
really smart guy with really cool uh, and interesting uh, takes on, on a lot of the stuff. Oh, yeah. It was great that he came. I had so much fun at the panel and I was also really glad to get the chance to meet Eric Weinstein. So he showed up um, and I want to tell this funny story, actually, because the first thing he said to me when he saw me, he came over and he said, um, you're really bad at resting bitch face. And I, I thought that was the nicest compliment because I do actually smile in real life. But I joke a lot about how I do have RBF because, you know, whenever I do shows or whenever I'm people take photos of me, I look I look miserable, but I'm actually really happy. It's just my face. So I thought it was really nice that Eric would say that. And he he's also the coolest guy. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping that we'll do more panels in the future. And and uh, that would yeah. be terrific. Yeah, that would be true. If California, especially if California stops burning, that would be uh, <laughs> that would be really awesome. And, you know, like we uh, like we were saying, we, you know, we did the series, the um, sex, gender and bullshit series you know, almost three years ago. and uh, you know, all of these topics haven't, haven't gone away. I mean, it's, you know, it's gotten to the point where so much of what we talked about, you've, you've actually put into your book, the, uh, the end of gender. Um, so I would, I would love to just kind of talk about, um, a, a few things that, that you hit upon there. And, uh, you have a, an article, uh, that came out recently called, uh, and the headline is very provocative. Feminism in the bedroom can leave women unfulfilled. Um, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of people just read the headline and just started saying like, you know, nasty they stuff got, about it. But yeah, but maybe, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. They got mad, but going back to the science of why maybe you felt like you were, oh, a yeah. I didn't, I, I didn't like think I you almost, were a dork. It's like I almost wanted to leave that behind. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I didn't think you were a dork at all. Um, I, you know what it makes me think of? Have you heard of Yerkes Dodson law? No. So it's the idea that? that if you have too little anxiety or too high anxiety, it affects your performance negatively. But if you have just the right amount of anxiety or nervousness, or I guess excitement, then you perform the best. So maybe in your case, you are a little too excited, but maybe. it's very normal. I fangirl all the time. So it's, yeah, I totally get it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and uh, okay. So yeah, but so yeah, the, with- the, the feminism in the bedroom can leave women unfulfilled. So this column, um, this was in the Globe and Mail. It came out about two weeks ago, I think. And um, I thought it was totally reasonable. It's an excerpt from The End of Gender, which is my new book. It's from Chapter 7, which is a, a chapter about sex differences in sex and dating. And again, I find like with my writing, usually things fall into one of two camps. Either I think people are going to get really upset and they don't, or I think they're going to think it's totally fine and they do get upset. So this fell into the latter category where this piece came out. It went to number one on the Globe and Mail's website, which is Canada's national newspaper. So it went to number one within an hour. I was really happy. I thought, wow, people are finding this interesting. All the feedback I was getting was very positive. People were saying, thank you for saying that. You know, many women were saying to me, I see this in my girlfriends. They're all, I'll talk a bit about what the column was actually about, but they're saying they're all having lots of casual sex, but they're miserable. You know, they're not enjoying it. I thought, okay, cool. This is, this is what I'm trying to just put information out there, give people an alternative. What I basically was saying in, in the column was, you know, from an evolutionary, psycho- um, evolutionary psychology perspective, women are on average not going to be as interested in casual sex as men because sex comes with a greater investment in terms of pregnancy. And yes, we do have methods like birth control, but this, this doesn't override our evolutionary history because that technology is still quite new. So that was essentially the, the basic 
thesis. And I do very clearly say that, you know, these are on average differences. This is not to say that some women are not more like men and that there are not some men that are more like women. I'm sure there are plenty of women out there who enjoy casual sex and plenty of men who don't, but I feel only one narrative is, is being promoted to women in terms of what you should be like if you are in favor of gender equality. And I think we can acknowledge evolutionary psychology and also say that gender equality is important because for whatever reason, evolutionary psychology is seen as sexist or it's seen as um, belittling of women or people think it means that women should be submissive. And I don't think you have to make any of those assumptions. Um, So if people are interested to read it, it is on the Globe and Mail's website. Uh, you can also listen to uh, an excerpt from the audiobook, which is on my website, which is drdebrasso.com slash book. Um, and then if you go, there's a link from Simon & Schuster that you can click on and listen to the first five minutes of that chapter. So I mean, I'm very careful. I'm, I definitely do not think women should necessarily, I don't think women should be uh, held to stereotypical ideas of what gender are. You know, I'm, I try to be very clear about that when I talk about these issues, but that, that was the gist of it, and, and people got quite upset. Did, uh, um, did you read uh, your audio book? Uh... I did, yes. Nice. I did. It, I had the best time doing that, I have to say. It was my first time doing an audio. Well, this is my first book, so that was my first audio book, and it was, yeah. Maybe, maybe it'll be so good that people hire you to just do their books, too. That would be fun. Yeah. I would do that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, when I, before I met my wife, my wife and I, we've been together for, I think, like seven, going on eight years all, all together. So before I met my wife, I was in a relationship for like five years, a monogamous relationship, and it was a toxic relationship. And when I got out of that, you know, it was the first time I'd been single in in a really long time. And I had a fantastic time, you know, going out, dating and, and sleeping around. And I remember the first woman that I, that I slept with after my ex, uh, afterward, I told her, you know, you're the first woman I've slept with after my ex. And she was like, oh my God, I wish you didn't tell me that. Like, oh, why did you? And, and, you know, cause I was still, you know, I guess I was still learning, getting back out there. And it's like, it's like, man, a woman doesn't want to hear that. And uh, especially she thought that she liked me and thought that maybe there, you know, there might be a future there. Um, but to her, that was sort of like, oh man, this is not going to work out. This really, this is not going to be a relationship. Um, and, and I found a, a number of times where it was sort of like going out with people with, with sort of different intentions where, um, uh, at first it seems like, oh, we were both just, you know, sort of casual, but then, uh, either one of us wanting more than, than the other one. And, you know, it's sort of, uh, I guess it's, Catching it's feelings. What, what was that? Catching feelings. Catch it, you're catching feelings. Is that what they is that what they call it? I guess uh, that's what the kids say. Yeah, <laughs> that's, what the, that's what that's what the kids say uh, uh, nowadays. But it it you know with dating, it's I think it's it is important to uh, be honest with at least yourself about what it is that you want um, and what what it is that you expect to get um, out of a out of an encounter. You know, if it is if it is a hookup, understand that's what you want. Um, uh, because yeah, I think that there's a lot of, um, I think just nowadays it's, it's so easy to just move on to the next person, especially with like online dating and all that. 
Yeah, I, I'm a big proponent of the idea of being honest with, yeah, most importantly yourself. Because I think sometimes people go into situations not really clear about what they want, what their boundaries are. But I think especially with your partners and if you are, whether you are male or female, if you are only looking for sex, then I think you should be upfront about that. And don't say that you want a relationship or don't say that maybe things will change or maybe as you get to know the person, if you know very clearly that you're just looking to hook up, then you should really be upfront with your partner about that. Because I think that would, you know, make things much easier. Sex and dating as is, is, is complicated, super complicated, I would say to some extent now, especially with all these confusing messages that people are getting in terms of how we're supposed to behave. And if we do, if we do approach say sex and relationships with the belief that men and women are the same. I think we should be treated the same, but we are not the same in terms of how our sexual systems work. And so when you try to ignore that information, it can make things much more difficult for you. And I don't think it's actually enlightening or helpful for women or men to go into, to approach relationships with uh, an obscured way of understanding the -hmm. other sex. Yeah. And I, and I, uh, I, I've been, uh, like I've noticed, I, I I think if I were if I were single again, I would want a world where sort of men, uh, straight men, are able to act like gay men in the way that gay men can be very direct on what they want, and it's and it's cool, and it's like oh that you know I'm I'm uh, you know uh, I'm asking for what I want, and if you don't want to give me it, okay, fine, I'll I'll move on. But uh, not the, you know, the horror, the shock of you asking for, you know, this, you know, this, um, this thing to happen. I don't know if that's more of a bit than what the way I really want the world to be. Um, No, I definitely could see that. I'm, you know, I'm surprised that that lady didn't appreciate you telling her what your situation was, because it's good for her to to have known as well, right? Oh, yeah. No, and no, I think, I think, I think at some point she was, you know, happy that I was being, you know, being honest with her. Um, But just uh, in the moment, it sucks. Yeah, it's like you know, right afterward, you know, right, (laughs) you know, right after the, you know, the, the, right after, uh, post coitus, um, uh, no one wants to, uh, no one wants to hear that. Um, and I, you know, with single people as well as with people in relationships, what I'm finding is even people in relationships are often not telling each other honest, being honest with each other about what it is that they want. And, um, you know, open communication and honesty, you know, they're cliches, but there's something to them where, where, especially if you want to have a partner, you got to let them know what, what your plans are, you know? Or especially with sex. I'm amazed because as a sex expert, people come to me with all kinds of questions. I love it. I find it super, super fascinating. And it lets me where it lets me stay on top of the newest research too, which is really helpful. But what I love is when people, um, whether it's for work or in my personal life, ask me questions and say like, is this normal? My partner likes this, is this normal? What should I do in this situation? And in so many cases, I just think, really the conversation should be with your partner, not with me. Like, I think it's great if you want to talk to someone and get uh, another perspective or definitely couples counseling or get another professional's perspective. But at the end of the day, you really can't know anything until you talk to your partner. And and if you're not fully um, transparent with your partner about what you want or what's important to you, I think that's really going to affect the success of the relationship or the marriage. Yeah. And, and, and I would, I would recommend too, for, for people who are in relationships to have, to, to have at least one other couple in their life that is doing okay. 
that their relationship is actually working out. And the reason why is when you have too many couples in your life that are all fucked up and they have problems and all that, what happens is you and your partner spend all your time talking shit about how messed up they are. And then you don't end up actually talking about, wait, wait a minute. We have some things that we need to take care of here. Um, so that, 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 that's me. Uh, that's a subreddit. I, I think I just, what's that subtweet? What is that called? Sub, subreddit. I don't know. I've heard of people tweeting their relationships, not anyone close to me. That's terrible. I can't yeah. imagine what that's like, especially when your significant other finds it because they will, they will inevitably find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. And, and um, in your research, you, you started, I don't know if you started with the, the paraphilia stuff. What, what, what is paraphilia? And a paraphilia is an unusual sexual preference. So it's known more colloquially as a kink, essentially. Okay. So yeah, I was doing brain imaging of paraphilias and also hypersexuality, which is when people's sexual behaviors become excessive and interfere with their day-to-day life. Is that is that where like um, the nymphomania comes from? Is that is that yeah, a real term? Uh, that would be like a more, like, yeah, it's like a, it's, I believe it was a medical term before, but now hypersexuality is is more commonly used. So yeah, it's people who are, you know, they're chronically cheating on their partners. They're viewing pornography for long periods of time to the point where they're not going to work or it's affecting school or their relationship. Um, yeah, but in a lot of cases, I mean, I think it's important. I mean, this is a bit of an aside, but for people who, who are concerned about their um, sexuality or they feel that it's excessive, I think it's important to also consider what are your own perspectives on sex? Because I find a lot of people who self-diagnose themselves as having a problem. In some cases, it's because they have a lot of shame and guilt about their sexuality or about being sexual at all. And so they'll self-pathologize and say, I have a problem with sex when really it's, you know, maybe they're, they're stressed and there are other things going on in their life. Or in some cases, their sex drive is not actually that atypical, but they just feel guilty about it and and with the the paraphiliacs is that, is that what you would call it paraphilics um paraphilics yeah well <laughs> paraphilic. people pe- people with paraphilias pe- people with paraphilias what was the goal to treat them or just to understand like sort of where where this comes from what was it treated as if you know it was like a a sickness or something like that uh, I wouldn't call it a sickness because there is okay. definitely that negative connotation with yeah, sickness. Sure. I mean, there are there are paraphilic disorders in which case. So there's a difference between someone with a paraphilia and someone with a paraphilic disorder. Some You can have a paraphilia and if it's not uh, affecting you negatively and it's not harming your partners, then there's nothing, there's no issue there. It's only when you are doing things that are potentially not consensual or if you're hurting people, then it becomes disordered. Um, so my research, I, d- I did do clinical work previously, but in that context, it was research brain imaging f- to understand why do people have these preferences and that will help us, that will help to inform treatment of it in the case where people are struggling to to deal with it or if it is, um, you know, causing their partner's harm or if it's affecting them negatively, essentially. So uh, my research did show that it is, I mean, it added to the body of research showing that paraphilias are biological. So they're, um, there's, there are differences in terms of brain development. And so it speaks to the fact that they are very much ingrained and they are innate, so they can't be changed. So, uh, I mean, my big thing, another thing I want to emphasize is that say something like sexual sadism, which involves the uh, people who with who are sadistic find it sexually arousing to hurt other people. And even in a context like that, that's not necessarily 
a disorder, it's only a disorder if they are acting out on it. Because some people with sadism will say, I know that this is not right and to for me to do this because it's it's unethical it hurts people so there's a difference that i usually want to clarify because sometimes people get upset when i say that paraphilias are biological because they think that that is somehow uh saying that people who act unethically or or coercively should not be held accountable and that's not what i'm saying i think there's a very big difference between your sexual interest and how you choose to behave and whether or not your interest is hardwired or not doesn't make a difference in terms of if someone should be held responsible for behaving in a way that's bad. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I had this, uh, I had this theory about, you know, sort of, um, for one, uh, the mainstreaming of, of pornography, um, you know, in general, but also just the, the specific language that a lot of people are, are using with pornography. So like, you'll see like headlines, like, so-and-so destroys, you know, blah, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I almost feel like it's um, like the internet has always been just a, a tool for unattractive men to basically like criticize women, you know, to sort of like uh, there used to be that hot or not app, uh, that hot, hot or not website. And, you know, you could only imagine what these dudes looked like who were saying that, you know, this cute woman is not hot uh, uh, and all that. And I almost, I almost feel like that, you know, that sort of uh, urge has, has been kind of like transposed onto, uh, onto pornography, like sort of like a, almost like a violent streak to it. I don't know. It's just something I've been thinking about. Yeah. I mean, so I, I want to say when I talk about pornography, there are a couple of, uh, caveats I like to to give because people again will say, well, she used to write for Playboy. Of course, she's going to have these views or, you know, I don't want to say like for me, actually, I don't look at pornography, number one, which is probably very surprising for some people to hear, but I, I don't. So for me, my whatever my perspective is on porn, it's really based on the research literature. I have no personal investment to go either way in terms of being pro, I guess, not anti-porn. Um, People who are who don't like pornography get mad because I'll say I think porn for adults, it's entertainment. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, that's not to say again that it can't become problematic, but um, I don't think pornography in itself is inherently harmful. I don't think it's good for kids' development. I don't think children should be exposed to it. I, I don't think people should learn about sex from porn, regardless of what age you are. But um, say something with. Yeah, and definitely I would agree there's some pornography out there that is distasteful, violent, misogynistic. Um, the times I've talked about porn addiction, so there's no research to suggest that porn, pornography, excessive porn use is an addiction. It definitely can be a problem for someone in their life because, you know, some people will be viewing it for hours on end, like I said that to the point where they're not going to work because they're up so late or they're ignoring their partner. That's not good. But right. whether it's actually an addiction or not, I mean, the research right now is still very muddy. It was included in the Intercla International Classification of Diseases as a sexual, um, not a sexual, as a impulse control disorder, not as an addiction. And it's not in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So in terms of the research literature, because it is quite messy still and in terms of how people define so-called porn problems it varies among studies so 
just want to clarify that because I have talked about this before and then people get upset and they say, oh, you know, whatever. So that those are my main points. And I think if research starts to show that, yes, it is like an addiction, then I would say, okay, then I'll change my mind. But until that point, it's not recognized that way. And, and, and ASECT, which is the large, largest body of um, sex therapists and educators in the US, they don't recognize it as an addiction. So that's where I stand on, on that. Yeah, I, I can definitely see the, it being a problem of impulse control, especially, I mean, if anybody has a, has a computer, I mean, it takes less than a second to click over and find, and, uh, find pornography. You know, and it's sort of like, uh, it's a very easy way to f- to fill the lull in a in the day, and and I think yeah. I think and so much of this stuff too. I think it comes down to like you know, people really need to take a step back and look at what they're doing and ask themselves: Is this helping my life or is it not helping my life? Is you know masturbating however, however many times a day is that taking away uh, valuable energy from you know my relationships, my partner, or, or anything like that? And it. And, uh, it, I don't know, it's, it's almost, uh, it's almost like I could, I could imagine somebody even, uh, you know, asking that question, being accused of, oh, well, you're, you must be against porn in general. And it's like, well, no, it's, does it work for me or does it not work for me? Yeah. And that's another case because I find whenever there's any issue that has anything to do with sex, people jump on the sexual aspect of it without taking a step back and saying, okay, what is this really about? And for a lot of people who do struggle with porn, there's other stuff going on. You know, I've said it's about procrastination in many cases, anxiety. Um, and, And if you just, for some people, if you just take the porn away, if they don't have other coping skills, then it goes towards some other form of procrastination, whether it be on social media for eight, 10, 12 hours a day, or they'll mm-hmm. find something else to, to basically waste their time. So I don't think like with any aspect of hypersexuality or anything related to sex, I think it's important that we're able to take a very clear minded view on it because it doesn't help people. If you're treating them, if you're, if they're being treated as though this is a problem about sex and it's not, if this is actually anxiety, it's not going to help them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, something I wanted to talk about too, is I came across, um, this, I guess it's, it's an advice column. Um, and the, there was a, a woman who asked, this woman is a, uh, is a gay, she's a, a lesbian. And she asked, is it wrong for cis lesbians to exclude trans women as potential sex and romantic partners? And uh, the headline says, the answer is a complex emotional and ethical maze. Um, th- that seems like something that's really new, right? The I the idea that um, gay women should have almost like a moral obligation to accept trans women as potential partners. Um, what, what do you, what do you make of this stuff? Yeah, this is a hugely contentious issue right now. And so one of the chapters in the end of gender, I do talk about this. This is chapter six. Um, so I did read that article and um I thought it was pretty reasonable. You know, when you look at this conversation, it tends to be quite polarized. It tends to be quite aggressive and hostile and understandably so. And I I do, I try to understand both sides. You know, I'm not gay and I'm also not trans, but um, I think what's important is that, you know, research has shown that trans people are discriminated against in the dating pool. And I don't think that's right. I also think people should be free to have sexual preferences and to have their own autonomy and to have boundaries. And I think whoever you choose to sleep with is your business and your business alone. And I don't think anyone can tell you 
who you should or should not find sexually attractive. So, you know, I, I understand the concern um, because when I was doing research um, before, many of them, I've, you know, I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people about their sex lives. And many of the men I would speak to would say that they had had trans partners in the past, um, but they would not introduce these women, these trans women to their friends or their family because they, for whatever reason, didn't want to, or they were embarrassed. And I think that's awful. I don't think that's acceptable. Um, but I also understand lesbians point of view saying the definition of being a lesbian is being attracted to not being attracted to penises. You know, that's, that's pretty much the defining thing of being a lesbian. So I, I don't think they should be told, well, no, you should be interested in, in penises. So it's the way this conversation is unfolding though. I just find it so unhelpful because people are very quick to jump on either side based on, you know, I think it's a very knee jerk reaction. And I think it's not helpful to tell people they're transphobic if they have sexual boundaries. And I think it's also not helpful to say that people should be excluded based on their, you know, whether they're preoperative or postoperative. I think if you are, if you are interested in dating a trans person, then you should, and, and, you know, not allow any sort of societal influence to affect that ultimately. Yeah. And I, and I think too, something that doesn't come up is just sort of, you know, especially anyone who's under, undergone surgery, um, you know, how, how good is the surgery at this point in time? Like I can imagine a hundred years from now, surgery is just going to be incredible and, um, um, you know, uh, fewer scar, you know, less scar tissue and, and, and stuff like that. Cause even when I see, um, uh, women who've transitioned to men, uh, I guess trans, trans men who've had, you know, these double mastectomies and, um, you know, had the, the scarring that it leaves is, is so, it's, it's so apparent, you know, it's just, it's so there. And I'm like, I'm like, damn, like, is there a way, you know, I hope that we get to a point where breasts can be removed with, with limited scarring, uh, and all that. And I think just, even just from like an aesthetic, an aesthetic, uh, level. So even I could just imagine being, uh, you know, being a lesbian, um, and seeing a trans person who's, you know, had bottom, uh, bottom surgery and just it not looking the way, you know, nature intends it to look, I guess, without, you know, not without trying to be too crass. You know, I think, I think that, 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 that's something that I've just thought about. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I hope so too. I hope that the technology gets there and, um, Another point of consideration is also whether sexual functioning will be maintained post-surgery. So, I mean, I think it's understandable in my mind why someone wouldn't want to go undergo surgery. And I think that should be totally acceptable. And I think people should be, I, I don't think that should be required of someone who, who has transitioned. Yeah, I can, um, yeah, if, um, I don't know if like someone like Caitlyn Jenner has, you know, had bottom surgery and all that, but taking that as an example, this is a person who, you know, for their entire life has had a penis and the idea of, um, saying that, oh, because you now identify uh, as a woman that somehow you're obligated to do away with that part of your anatomy that, you know, that seems like it's, it's asking, asking quite a bit of, of somebody. Yeah. And I mean, uh, from coming from that perspective, again, I, I think people should be 
free to do what they want with their bodies. And it's no one's place to tell you what you should do to be able to fit into this category of woman. That's my view. I mean, in the book, I am critical of some aspects of, of uh, transgender activism because they, I am happy to acknowledge a trans person as the sex they identify as. I will use the pronouns they'd like me to use. But I do think there are some differences, say in this case, between someone who was born female and a trans woman. And I don't think it should be considered transphobic to say that because in some cases there are some really serious implications that can come from us ignoring these differences. And, you know, this mantra of trans women are women. Again, I would say, yes, trans women are women, but there are some differences. And those differences do not justify transphobia. They do, do not justify discrimination or hate or anything like that. But it's it's come to the point now where if you say anything like that, you are called transphobic or you all are called bigoted or people assume that you have, I don't know, that, that you have certain views that I, I know I don't have. So that that's really why I wrote that chapter. And I always want to be very clear. Like, I don't want people to use any of the information in the book to discriminate against the trans community or, or anyone. It's really just about trying to push back against a lot of misinformation that's out there that is now influencing policy, it's influencing science, it's influencing medicine. Uh, and it's just completely inappropriate and, and unhelpful that that's happening. And um, in England, uh, or you know, perhaps around the world now, they're burning uh, J.K. Rowling books um, for her, I guess, her stance that she's taken on, uh, on these issues. Uh, I mean, I, I was going to ask if you fear a, a book burning, but but the good thing is, like, in order for them to burn your book, they have to buy it first, right? So so get the you know get those numbers up, and then you know do what you want with the uh, uh, with the book. But you know what what, what do you make? I'm I, I'm I've I've never read the Harry Potter series. Um, I haven't kept up with J.K. Rowling's other work. Um, to me, she's uh, I've always just seen her as as this person who's had a, a huge impact on pop culture and, it, you know, made a super successful uh, uh, series. But, you know, if you're on Twitter, it's almost like she's, you know, she's a demon of some sort, like a devil. And I just don't, I, I can't make uh, heads or tails of it. She, I mean, she's been very, very reasonable throughout this whole discussion. They had a hashtag trending the other oh, day. Did you see it? It was like RIP. RIP. Yeah. yeah RIP JK Rowling. Yeah. Which is so distasteful to me. And I don't think it ever needs to go there. I mean, I understand people who may be upset by what she has to say, but everything she said, like she cites studies when she does. And when she, um, right. She wrote a blog post about it and she does like Twitter threads. And, um, so yeah, you know, I think as long as, what you're saying is science-based, then you should not be afraid to say it. And this, that was my whole approach with my book as well. Just everything. I have all the citations in there. People can get as mad as they want at, at me, but ultimately what they're angry at is not based in substance, I don't think. I think it's, un it's understandable to be afraid of misuse of information, but let's talk about that instead of saying the information doesn't exist or lying about what the information does say. Yeah, I, I I read her piece that that she had on her um, uh, on her blog uh, on her website, and uh, it came across as you know very level headed, um, very caring as well. And I think uh, you know she also took the opportunity to open up about the sexual abuse that she had faced in in life too. Um, and 
yeah, it didn't come across as somebody who doesn't care about the lives of, of trans people. Um, it, it came across as somebody who has, you know, given this a lot of thought. And I know one of the things that, that she was very concerned about, and it's a, a, a chapter uh, in your book regarding, um, you know, should children with gender dysphoria transition? Um, and maybe we could, you know, talk about, uh, talk about that. My, you know, to, uh, I, I have a, uh, a son who's six months old and, uh, before he was even conceived, um, his mother and I, we talked about whether or not we were going to circumcise him. And I said, absolutely not. I said, absolutely not. I'm not, we are not going to touch, um, you know, our, our, our child. We're not going to, to circumcise him. So, uh, and, and it's funny how that became almost like, like a, like a political statement. Like I made, I made a joke, I made a joke about it. And I said, my son's already living out one of his father's dreams of not having a circumcised penis. And, <laughs> and people were like, Whoa, are you, were you serious about that? Like, Oh my God, you're so brave. And we're thinking about, we're thinking about not doing it either. Isn't it so barbaric and blah, blah, you know? And it's like, I didn't mean to make a political statement. I just couldn't imagine hurting my child. Um, but then you, your you have, son is, your son is so adorable too. I have to say, Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm, you know, very fortunate to have him. I'm, I'm, you know, absolutely in, in love with him. And it's, th th there's two things working here. One, I can't imagine giving my son at a very young age, uh, hormone blockers, puberty blockers and that sort of thing. But then also on the other end, I can't imagine, uh, uh, being told that my son, you know, is going through something and this is the way to help him and not wanting to do everything I can to, to help him. So in the, over the past six months, I've, I've sort of, I've had a crash course in, in, in what, you know, kind of what these parents might, might be going through and what they're trying to balance there. Um, so. Right. And I, the thing is when you see this issue in terms of how it plays out in the media, the parents who do have, children who have transitioned, like young children who have transitioned, um, they're not representative of most parents who are in this situation. So I guess I can start by talking about the research. All of the research literature that currently exists shows that the vast majority of kids with gender dysphoria, so who feel like more like they're the opposite sex than their birth sex, they are more likely to grow up to be gay in adulthood, not transgender, and they will desist by puberty. So it doesn't make sense for them to transition because there's a good chance they're going to change their minds. And then if they have transitioned, they're going to detransition. So they'll go back to living as their birth sex. And what parents are being told now, and this is not just by the media, this is literally by medical professionals as well. They're being told that if their child does not transition, that they are at a high risk of suicide. And mm -hmm. it's inappropriate for, for them to be told this because the suicide statistic that they are often quoted, this 41%, is was a study that was done in adults. So it was not had nothing to do with children. The study also did not look at comorbidity. So we can't know if, if a person's attempted suicide may have been due to other mental health issues they were having at the time. Um, and, and they didn't even ask the person, well, I, I think it was a well done study and the researchers actually, uh, but the researchers mentioned these things in the study. They say that they didn't ask about whether um, the person was experiencing issues with their gender at the time of the suicide attempt either. So you can't really make the extrapolations that people are 
making from this statistic. And I always want to emphasize, I do think adults with gender dysphoria should be free to transition if that's what they choose to do. Because as an adult, you have the mental capacity to make decisions about life-altering medical interventions potentially. And also research does show transitioning can help. So in adults, um, but I understand, I mean, in talking to parents, I understand um, why, I think when you are looking at this from a third party perspective, you think, how can these parents be letting their kids do these things? They don't let, we, we don't let kids choose what they're going to have for dinner even. So how are you letting them mm -hmm. undergo these interventions? But when a parent is being faced with this narrative and they really believe that this is their only choice, I mean, I, I really can't blame them coming from that perspective. Yeah, it's super, it, it's super scary to be, to be told basically, if you don't do this, your, your child's going to die. And it's, um, yeah, I can, I can only, uh, only imagine that when it, when it does come to that, that 41% that you were, that you were talking about, how big of a study was that? How many people were involved? I can't know? remember off the top of my head, but I can, I can tweet it out after people want to see. Um, but that is usually the statistic. And sometimes there, you know, the statistic can vary. They'll cite other studies, but that's like the, the main one. If you go in and look at the methods though, I mean, that's the main thing uh, in terms of understanding like what, what else is potentially going on here. I feel like a, a statistic will not be spread unless it fits a particular narrative. And that's not helpful because yes, I do think that we should have compassion for the trans community and we should be concerned about this, but at the same time, fear mongering is not helpful. And, and with the, uh, with the breakdown, um, is, is a trans person more likely that, you know, according to this, this, uh, this stat to commit suicide, if it's, um, biological male who has transitioned to a, a woman or, biological female is transitioned to uh, to a man and and uh, and my apologies if i'm not using the right you know the terminology uh, on this. this is all very very new to me um but it, are those breakdowns in there as well there was another study that looked at that and so it found that so it looked at suicide attempts over the last year and then over the lifespan so what they found was it was actually quite similar between trans men and trans women but they found that trans for trans women it was slightly higher for them in the last 12 months. And then for trans men, it was higher over the lifespan, um, but they didn't elaborate on why that is. Um, I think, you know, this research is very helpful because obviously then it would help to inform interventions to help again, help the community, but we can't do that research if it is so politicized. And especially now, any good researcher is not going to want to touch anything that has to do with gender dysphoria or the trans community unless they are an activist or unless they themselves are trans. But in that case, even I think, you know, I have many trans people who reach out to me who tell me they agree with me. So the activists don't necessarily speak for everyday people. So I would say even maybe trans scientists may not want to touch these subjects because they'll say, well, unless I promote a very particular narrative, I'm going to get into trouble. They, I mean, you see trans people getting called transphobic nowadays, which I think is, you know, one step too far. But um, yeah, it, it's definitely a, a thing, an issue of concern. And it's something I do think about whenever I talk about this issue, because I don't want to add to the hardships of the community. Yeah. And, and uh, in your book, um, in the introduction to your book, you, you talk about how, it, how it, uh, this topic in particular sort of um, 
paved the way for the rest of your career when you were coming across a lot of concerned parents with with kids who were transitioning uh, and all that. And uh, it seems like we've been seeing a lot of uh, people come forward who have regrets about about transitioning and um, you know just really just incredible stories. Uh, you know what's to be made of those people who are coming forward. Of the detransitioners, yeah. I, yeah. I, and this is the thing, what I see coming in the future is there are going to be many, many more detransitioners. We already see this happening in the UK. Um, I think the UK is waking up to this sooner than those of us in North America. But it is coming and it's going to be really sad and unfortunate when it does happen because this was completely preventable. And so, you know, I'm trying to be as vocal as possible about this because I want to protect these children. So these... They're predominantly young women who are detransitioning now. Um, and for many of them, they have other mental health issues like autism. Um, in a lot of cases, they have sexual trauma, eating disorders, self-harm. Um, and many of them are also lesbian. And so when you look at the reasons why they chose to transition, many of them will say either they weren't comfortable with their sexuality or they felt different as women. So they've gone back to identifying as female now. They will say, you know, they never really felt like a typical girl or they didn't feel like they were a girly girl. And so they thought, okay, this must mean I'm a man or this must mean. Now we're also seeing the trend of non-binary where, where people are identifying as a third gender. And I think it's a similar presentation in that it's, you know, gay people who are, who experience homophobia or I think young women who experience sexism and they say an easier life for me would be to be a man. And it makes me really sad, one as a woman and also someone who grew up in the gay community, that we're not having a proper discussion about this. Instead, if a, if a young person says they want to transition for any reason, society just says, okay, great, we're going to help you do that. And medical professionals have to facilitate this now because they run the risk of losing their license. It's not just about activist mobs going after them and trying to destroy them. Now they have to also worry about being, you know, losing their license in Canada. We have a bill that's, that is potentially going to be made into a law where it's going to criminalize any therapeutic interventions that do not facilitate uh, basically transition. And, and uh, is there, is there, a, so, is there, yeah, is there a limit? Like, is there a, um, like, how do you codify, you know, sort of how, how do you codify that process? Is it sort of like how many, you know, how many hours have they been seen with a psychiatrist or how many visits have they gone? Have they gone through how much time before they're, they're given, you know, the first, um, you know, the, the first, uh, hormone or how do they figure that out? Right. So yeah, as I mentioned, I don't do clinical work anymore and I don't mm -hmm. work with this population, but uh, from conversations I've had with my colleagues, I think it really depends on an individual basis. I think any good therapy really depends on the individual person. So it's about how much time have you been feeling like this? How quickly are these decisions being made? How sure are we that once you do transition, it's going to make you feel better and that the issues you currently do have actually do have to do with your gender and they're not due to something else that you you're dealing with because if it's something else and the person transitions, they're still going to be struggling with whatever that thing was when they are living as the opposite sex or as a third gender. So they're not really taking care of the root problem, in which case 
there's a higher likelihood that they will detransition because they'll realize this this is not helping me. And in you know many cases, if you're undergoing medical interventions like getting a double mastectomy, which is happening, um, or going on testosterone, th these are um, permanent. You know, you will have permanent side effects from that. So uh, I would feel better about it if we could have this conversation and people were saying, you know, especially for people who want to live as a third gender and undergo medical interventions to, um, I guess, appear more in that way. I'd be more comfortable with that if, if they could get a proper assessment done with a mental health professional and the person said, yes, we, this is what's going to be right for this person, but they can't have that conversation now. It's very much whatever patient wants, the doctor has to do it. And if not, they're going to pay for it, essentially. Pay for it in not a very nice way. Uh, it's interesting because in the United States, one of the big criticisms of, um, you know, big pharma, if you will, is that, you, is that they're able to make commercials for, especially for things like antidepressants. You know, so obviously you see like, you know, commercials for Viagra and Cialis, but then you also see a lot of um, commercials for antidepressants. And I guess the criticism is, you know, if you market directly to a potential patient, they're going to their doctor and basically saying, I want this and you have to give it to me. Uh, where it seems like a similar thing is, is happening here where it's like, got to do what the patient wants as opposed to what actually might be in the best interest of the patient. Yeah, and another piece of this conversation is that a lot of this is happening on social media where it's completely unfiltered to these kids. And, you know, at least with advertising, there's a whole bunch of disclaimers at the bottom. So there's a little bit more information there. Whereas when you go on any of these social media platforms and you're just inundated with a particular ideology, especially for young people who are trying to figure out who they are, and they're basically told if you feel in any way that there's something uncomfortable it, within you that that has to be that must be your gender and so you should look at ways of remedying that in terms of transitioning and yeah I just wish there was more of a conversation I'm really hoping to reach more of these young people with the book and to say if you feel different that's okay and especially as a woman if you feel different or if you don't mm -hmm. like women's roles in society that's okay i mean that doesn't mean you're not a woman or if or if there's are negative stereotypes about women being weak um, let's fight back against that the way to deal with that is not to identify as something other than a woman yeah and i i, I wonder about um you know, uh, sort of like kind of like a separate category of just mental health in, in general, where uh, where it seems like a lot of people, at least, you know, online and, and maybe I'm just talking about like Tumblr and all that, you know, just sort of holding up like sort of their, you know, uh, mental illness as sort of a badge of honor in a way um, that, that I've seen that where uh, I'm, I'm someone I've, I've I sort of have a, a melancholic uh, streak to me. Like I, uh, I've gotten better now, but there used to be days of, I, I would, you know, be all the way up here and then come all the way down and just be, you know, not, not, not wanting to, uh, um, uh, at the worst times, like not wanting to be around if, if you, if you know, if you know what I mean. And fortunately I've been able to, with therapy and stuff, get, you know, get out of that. Um, but at no point was I like, no, I should be proud that I, th that, that I have this going on in my head in, in my, in my mind, it was always like, all right, how do I, how do I fucking defeat this thing? Because I don't want to be like this. And I don't want people, um, 
trying to give me a trophy for something that, you know, is, is, is ruining my life. I think part of it is coming from, cause I do notice that too. People are really, they're almost over enthusiastic to tell people about their mental health issues. And I think that's great. I mean, coming from someone from a background of working in mental health, of course, I think it's really good to destigmatize mental mm-hmm. health disorders. Um, but it, part of it, I think is the whole, it's tied into intersectionality and that whole victimhood, victim mentality where you more weight is placed on what you have to say or your opinions, the more you are struggling or Mm -hmm. the more complaints you have. So even though a mental health issue is not obviously not the same as gender identity or race or any of these other things in the intersectional hierarchy, I think it's still one way for people to say, well, you know, I don't, I, I have all these other problems, so you should listen to me too. And in a lot of cases, if you were actually to go and do a diagnosis, I'm sure many of these people don't even meet the diagnostic criteria for whatever it is they say they have. Or sometimes they'll say they have um, something, but it's not, you know, they never elaborate really on what it is or it, it's just, it just seems like something that people are doing to score points. And that to me is distasteful. But mm-hmm. I, but overall, of course, I do think it's a good thing that we talk more about these issues. I'm glad that therapy was, you found therapy helpful. And I don't think there should be anything wrong with going to therapy. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, just yeah. yeah I wish, I wish, uh, I'm, you know, thankfully I'm, uh, was able to, you know, find, you know, find the right therapist for me, um, you know, years back. Um, and also it, it really, it, it's helped a lot with, uh, my relationship too, my relationship. And then also just, all the other stress that can just, you know, you know, be thrown upon you that, that, you know, we're all, uh, we're all going through, um, angry people on social media. Ah, oh, the worst is when uh, I know that I've spent too long on social media when I start talking to my wife as if she's been arguing with me on social media <laughs> and she had, and she has not, um, uh, what, one, uh, one, one last thing I just wanted to talk to you about, uh, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, we you know sort of did a little recap of, um, the show we did together in, uh, in Los Angeles, you brought up, uh, Eric Weinstein, uh, you've been on, uh, you know, Joe Rogan. Um, and, uh, what I, what sometimes I fear is that I'm listening to all the same people who are all communicating with one another. Um, and do you, do you ever feel, do you ever fear that like that sort of, um, you're not reaching as far out as, uh, as you could. Um, and, and not, not through any, any, any fault of your own. I, I, I think about it too, where I'm like, like, man, I, I, I seem to be kind of gravitating toward the same, the same people in their shows. Yeah. That's, I think that's a good concern to have. It's a healthy concern to have because it shows you're not biased. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do try to, uh, expose myself to different points of view and to actively seek out, people I disagree with, especially journalists I disagree with to harass them. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. (laughs) People are going to clip that and say that she says to harass people. No, I was kidding. Um, But, you know, I think to see their perspectives and I will go out and read other publications that are um, that I probably don't agree with their content, but I just want to understand the other side. And um, the book is very much about left-leaning science denial. I mean, I would consider myself still to be a, a liberal, but I will read far left publications. I'll read conservative publications. I'll read um, 
perhaps if you if there are any publications that are more centrist, but I feel like most publications nowadays there is a, a leaning one way or the other. That's just the nature of of where we are politically right now. But I think that's helpful, and just also to be willing to have conversations with people that you disagree with in your social circles, or if you meet someone or encounter someone who has political views that are different from you, not to immediately make assumptions about the kind of person they are or to shut down any interactions that you would have with them. That would be my advice. And mm-hmm. right now, my one of my favorite public, public intellectuals is Douglas Murray. So I'd really recommend checking him out. I've been to watch his interviews because he's just so fascinating to me. He's absolutely hysterical also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he, he's, a, he, he's a very dapper Englishman. And he, he has a very, very cool uh, way about him. And I got to say, um, I don't know who his hairstylist is, but they've been doing a great job because you go back and look like five years ago, even hair wasn't on point as much as it is now. So Douglas, oh. you, you're doing a great job, man. Your, your hair. <laughs> huh? No, I, I, my hair, my, my, I know my hair. No, I, the style he has now is very cool. He's dressing better. Hair looks better. I think, I think it's coming across very well. He's, he's so well-spoken and his yeah. arguments are so just on points. I just ruined. I just. I just ruined a really positive thing about Douglas. Murray. I think. The, I think the man looks great now. That's what I'm saying. I, his haircut is amazing, and and all that. I was trying to be positive. So. No, I know. <laughs> he's gonna. He's gonna come after me. He's gonna be like, "Who's this little Yankee? This uh, this Yankee moron?" Um, well, uh, Deborah, uh, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with me. Um, I want everybody to uh, check out your book, The End of Gender, and uh, where can they find you on uh, social media? I'm on Twitter and Facebook at Dr. Deborah So. I'm on Instagram at Dr. Deborah W. So. And if you want to learn more about me, my website is drdebrahso.com. Uh, you can get The End of Gender on Amazon, Barnes & Noble's. Uh, Barnes and Noble, sorry, Indigo, everywhere you buy books, indie booksellers, and the audiobook is read by me. Awesome.